Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Simon Wang is Professor of Climate Dynamics and Assistant Director of the Utah Climate Center at Utah State University. Dr. Wang studies climate variability, weather process, extreme events, and long-term prediction. And he recently gave a presentation to news reporters for a virtual event organized by Inside Climate News titled Wildfire, Heat Waves, Snowpack, and Floods, Climate Change in the Mountain West. We're going to talk about climate change in the Mountain West on the program today. Dr. Wang's research has appeared in scientific journals such as Nature Climate Change, Nature Communications, Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, Journal of Climate and Geophysical Research Letters, among many others. He edited the first monograph on climate extremes with the American Geophysical Union that came out in 2017. And in former lives, he was an Air Force weather officer and a freelance photographer. Professor Wang, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. Good to have you with us. Uh, that is interesting, Air Force weather officer and freelance photographer. Do you keep the photography up? Yeah, kind of. It's really my habit. <laughs> With the time you have, yeah, free time, which probably isn't a whole lot, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to start with, um, you know, go through impacts in the Mountain West and maybe start with wildfire. Um, I, I'm not seeing it in the news, but it just it seems increasingly severe fire seasons uh, that we're having. How does that connect up with climate change? Uh, I think the trend of a increasingly severe and widespread fires and also the frequency are already on everyone's radar and it touched deeply to humans' lives and properties. So the, the climate change comes into play to interact with the, the fire season. Uh, we all know why there's a fire season, right? I mean, it's summertime when, when the air gets drier and then going to last for some months without much of rainfall. And so by the end of the fire season, uh, you know, vegetation, trees, forests, they're, they're pretty much stressed, and they become easier to burn. So when there's a fire, you know, regardless about how the fire was ignited, uh, the tendency for these fires to spread or grow bigger, uh, that's something that's been fueled by this lengthier fire weather or fire season. Do we, are we able to predict that, uh, are the fire seasons going to be longer in the future? Yes, uh, studies from the literature have mostly indicated a lengthening of the fire season and also uh, increased intensity of fire weather. Uh, there are a few hotspots, uh, Western, Eastern Australia for one thing, Western United States, and part of the Mediterranean uh, areas as well. So that's uh, something that uh, climate models were able to predict and simulate, just like we predict the weather. So uh, just like we predict the weather, so um, I want to talk about maybe prediction in general, um, and then we'll come back to, to fire. I assume that uh, those predictions, continually working on models, are those predictions getting more accurate? Yes, in general, yes. Uh, fire weather, it, it, they come from a few basic uh, variables, right? Temperature, humidity, and wind speed. Uh, 
and also wind direction. The wind pattern uh, is all linked to pressure fields. So, so that's basically how our everyday weather uh, changes will bring us to. And so if we, if we know how the weather pattern is going to change, and now the forecast, you know, we, we're talking about days from seasons from decades. And so the, the, the tendency is quite clear that as the, the Earth warms, uh, you know, the fire weather, especially during the fire season, is going to become uh, more intense. And that computer models have a good ability of capturing those. It's the timing and the location, exact location, in the longer-range forecast that is uh, harder to tell. As it usually is with forecasting, right? The longer out you go, the, the harder to tell. Um, it, yeah, it's probabilistic. Yeah. Um, so longer duration, you're saying, but increased intensity um, as well. So uh, <laughs> not good news. What uh, I guess the, the, this information then goes to policymakers, uh, you know, people making decisions on how do we handle this. Uh, do you have any suggestions on what how, how we should respond? Uh, I don't have all the answers. And but in terms of wildfire or forest fire, however, uh, we have to know that you know the climate is only one component. And uh, our administration right now, you know, has put the most exclusively and the emphasis on forest management, which means that over the past uh, you know many decades. Uh, you know, the, the forest fire has been largely suppressed, and without this natural occurring fire, uh, forests become, have become uh, thicker. And so that tends to increase the potential for fuel. Uh, but that's really just one side of the equations. And we have to also take into account uh, human interactions, which means uh, recreational areas, you know, and residential areas getting deeper into the woods. And, and that uh, accompanied by the changing climate and make it a very difficult or complex issue to resolve. Um, I'm reading that the work, including, uh, you know, the folks here at Utah State University and yourself, have been working on predicting uh, water availability. Colorado River water supply, I'm just reading the headline here in an article, Colorado water supply uh, is predictable on a multi-year time scale owing to long-term ocean memory. What do you could tell me about that? Yes, this is a work uh, led by Professor Yoshi Chikamoto of our department, uh, Plain Soils and Climate. And, and Professor Chikamoto is a climate modeler. And, and, and we, from the Climate Center, have long tracked the Great Salt Lake elevation change. And as we know, you know, Great Salt Lake is really just the, next, the neighboring watershed of the Colorado River upper basin. So they, they share a unique climate region, and by region, I mean that there has been a unique variability that seems to come in an oscillatory manner. And so, you know, we will have consecutive wet years for two or three years, and then consecutive dry years, you know, in probably like six years later, and they form a, a quasi-decadal, which means roughly 10 to 15 years of oscillation. So we have long studied this, the source of this oscillation, and they have a, a signal that comes from not only the jet stream, the Arctic, but also tropical oceans. And Professor Chikamoto was able to use his computer models to 
quantified and identified those hotspots in the oceans surrounding North America. And then by capturing those ocean signals, then we know the lingering effect of this uh, slow change in the oceans and how they uh, affect the jet stream and how they affect the snowfall and rainfall uh, over our watersheds, which covers the Colorado River Basin as well as the Great Salt Lake. And that will that then translates uh, into the stream flow and also groundwater, and they'll combine, they combine into this Colorado River water supply that we also see these uh, 10 to 15 years of oscillation. So that's the background of the story. Tom. Yes. Uh, so uh, how far out do we think we can have, uh, you know, high, high accuracy with these predictions? Uh, so the, the important signal there is the change of the uptrend to downtrend or how long, you know, a given drought is going to last. And to really quantitatively say that how much, like, a million acre feet of water will we get, you know, two years from now, and that, that we have, you then have to introduce to probability, you know, uh, error bars like that. But, but then I think that uh, according to uh, uh, the study led by Professor Komodo, the uptrend and downtrend is well captured within three years. Uh, as far as the neighboring water, water body, the Great Salt Lake, uh, the Climate Center has produced a prediction that can go out for five years of the uptrend and downtrend. We actually have the, the Great Salt Lake prediction products being on the website for like a decade now. Yeah, and this is important, of course, uh, because, you know, uh, we're in the dry west, right? And it's in, important to know, uh, have, a, have good ideas we can of water resources going forward. So this is an important work yeah. you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to talk about extreme weather. Um, you uh, you edit, I think you were the lead editor on, on that book that I mentioned, uh, 2017, titled Extreme Weather. Um, it, it, first of all, I guess, describe or, or define extreme weather, and, and then is it increasing? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I think everyone of us has felt or experienced some sort of extreme weather. Uh, the extreme definition is quite tricky. Well, if, if you use data, then it usually goes out of the statistical significance range. So it means that, you know, uh, it's just something that uh, you don't expect to see every year or every season. Uh, in terms of uh, water, that usually comes into like a once in certain year of an event. You probably all heard about one in once in five five hundred years of event. You know, once in hundred years of flood. Uh, that kind of event. So it means uh, abnormally strong. Uh, events associated with uh, rainstorm, uh, flooding, or just the intensity of a drought. So we, so what used to be normal comes from a uh, earlier status of climate, which you will see that is extreme events. You know they did happen, but they are within certain range. So you know within probably ten, uh, 10 years you only will see it once. In recent years, they have popped up more. So once in, you know, what used to be one in the 100 years event is now like every two years. So there must be a, re- a reason pushing those boundaries. So the, the bulk of the meteorology 
analysis uh, and dedicated to understand these extreme events are to try to understand two ways. One is that how these events happen, and then the other is how the main condition changes will push the edge for these events to happen more. So that's basically what the, the research is about, to understand the physical process of these events. And if you, you know, they increase the temperature of the air by one degree or, you know, 0.5 degree of increase in, in some part of the oceans, what would those events become? Huh? Uh, and I should correct myself. It, I, I described the book as t- being titled Weather Extreme. It's Climate Extremes is the title of the book. Um, so, uh, of course, you said uh, studying how a changing climate brings more extreme events, right? And that, that interaction of the, of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, I re- was reading a synopsis of the book and um, saying a rapidly emerging area of scientific study is event attribution, which apparently seeks to understand relationships between extreme weather and the climate events, uh, climate change. Um, and you, you mentioned some of those extreme events, you know, floods, um, you know, and other, other things. What sorts of, uh, I guess, how are you uh, modeling this? How are you studying this? What specific things are you looking at to to try to see the linkages between changing climate and extreme weather? Uh, this is a very good question. So it's a uh, it's something attribution is something that uh, will appear to uh, some people as like we're trying to paint uh, cause to certain events. And well, in in the face of a climate change of a warming climate which is quite robust of a signal, and that usually is the non-hypothesis, which means that, well, we are seeing this change in, you know, of behavior from extreme events because the Earth is warming. But that's the hypothesis that we, we then try to analyze for. So, and the many studies actually come out uh, not finding evidence of extreme events linked to, to global warming, but there are a lot more uh, that links that to it. So, for example, uh, take Hurricane Harvey, you know, uh, of 2017. That was a that was a devastating hurricane in Texas area, and so that storm has been analyzed by uh, my myself included, probably five to six papers uh, by different group of uh, climate scientists. Uh, the methodology they use are different, but they all come to they all come to something like this. You can try to generate the same hurricane in computer models, and then you can start to change the environment. For example, uh, the, the temperature of the air, temperature of the ocean, uh, you know, or their collective uh, response. And you can simulate a similar event many, many times with these different environmental factors. And then you can compare to the actual situation and you see this uh, spectrum or this distribution of scenarios, you know, we, if we can somewhat, in a computer world, fall back to the pre-industrial Iraq, which more like 100 years ago, uh, compared to, you know, right now, or even like 100 years from, from now, with the increasing temperature, what would the storm, the same storm, uh, become, you know, more severe, does it rain more, as it move faster, so that's something that we can you can see. But different computer models, different methodologies will come to different uh, values. But if they are all four 
they all fall into the same size, then you have the more confidence to say that hmm, it looks really like that you know, the changing climate has made the Hurricane Harvey uh, stronger. Hmm. And of course, this work is important uh, because we can we can say, okay, the, the climate is changing, right? But of most interest to people, I think, is it, how is it changing and how is it going to affect me right here, right? So uh, how how accurate are the models right now and how accurate do you think they can become? In terms of uh, statistical of events, extreme events, uh, you know, when you, when you analyze or integrate uh, many extreme events, for let's just say a 10 years period of time, and that becomes a climate problem because the climate status is really changing and modifying these weather events. So for everyday life for us here, your different regions, you, you have different type of extreme events. In the mountain west, in the mountain west, you know, I mean, a, a winter that has only one snowstorm, that's an extreme event. Right, then we wouldn't have snow and we don't have enough water in the next spring and summer. So that's quite a strong in extreme events, just like the 2013 14 uh, California drought. But, you know, likewise, a, a storm that rains probably, you know, three seasons of rainfall in like three days in southern U.S., then that's an extreme event itself. So I guess depending on where we live, uh, the the type of extreme events that we will expect over our lifetime throughout the season, if they start to change or intensify, then that's something that will directly affect our lives. If you live in Midwest, right, and, you know, winter, now, now, winter blizzard or summer convective storms are really normal life. You know, it's just, just very normal, normal in the different weather, different seasons. If they become more severe, then, you know, what used to be a 20 minutes of heavy rainfall taking through Iowa will become something that is with much rain, much hail, and much gusty wind, kind of like what happened this past August in Iowa, or that windstorm. And it, it fits into this seasonality. That's about a time when Iowa will see uh, wind and rainstorms like that, but this particular one was unusually strong, and if there's a trend that such a strong event increase, then it starts to really affect people's life directly. If you just joined us, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest uh, for the hour is Simon Wang, professor of climate dynamics and assistant director of the Utah Climate Center, Utah State University. And uh, he recently gave a presentation titled Wildfire, Heat Waves, Snowpack, and Floods, Climate Change in the Mountain West. And that's a good organizing um, statement for uh, what we're trying to do here today in the, this hour. Uh, we'll take a brief break here and be back. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and S.E. Needham Jewelers, serving Utah since 1896, offering diamond engagement rings, anniversary bands, gemstone, and diamond jewelry. 141 North Main Street in Logan. Information at seneedham.com. What is climate change? How is it affecting our lives? And what can we do about it? We'll connect the dots from energy to extreme weather, public health, the economy, agriculture, and more. Catch Climate Connections weekday mornings at 549 and 849 on Morning Edition. 
and afternoons at 348 during All Things Considered, here on Utah Public Radio. What's it like to explore a city with your ears? The rumble, and people talking. Usually people are trying to block out the noise of the city, but it's actually interesting if you turn it up. Everything has pitch and rhythm. The city itself is playing music or singing. So listen to your city. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we're talking with Simon Wang, professor of climate dynamics at Utah State University. He's also assistant director of the Utah Climate Center. Uh, He edited the first monograph on climate extremes with the American Geophysical Union uh, in 2017. We were talking about that just before the uh, the break. Uh, So, Dr. Wang, uh, I want to, uh, you, you mentioned, you brought it back home to, uh, to to the Mountain West, mentioned some other areas as well. I want to talk about the Mountain West. So we talked about wildfire. Um, maybe we could go to snowpack uh, next. Of course, this is important not only for enjoyment, um, but uh, entire industry, the ski industry, and, of course, for water for that we drink and, and for other uses uh, here in the Mountain West. Uh, what do we see going forward? Um, how is climate change going to affect the snowpack? Um, for our region, Utah, you know, northern Utah and the surrounding states, um, it, this, uh, the, the, the latest generation of climate models from the UN uh, all indicate a better climate. So it, it may sound like a better news. Oh, you know, winter is getting more and more precipitation. But then the, the, the challenge is that as the temperature keeps warming, and a lot of that precipitation uh, will probably come as rain rather than snow. And, and then, then we create the so-called rain-on-snow uh, events, which not only didn't help the snowpack, but it will erode the snowpack as well, existing snowpack. And that's something that the observational data have shown. Uh, climate Center, uh, the director and I have, uh, have a study specifically on Utah's climate, climate uh, trend, and that's what observation data are already showing. The winter storms are actually getting more intense, you know, even though it's fewer of them. But, you know, when they rain, when they snow, uh, a bigger portion of that is rainfall rather than snowfall. And climate models are, uh, are consistent with this observational trend, projecting this uh, uh, wetter and wetter climate, slightly wetter climate, but with a much warmer temperature. So combined, those doesn't look very promising for our snowpack because then the next thing we need to worry about is the snowmelt season. Uh, it used to be uh, somewhat into April, but then uh, with the warming climate, and that might push earlier to be another month and then another month. So not only do we not receive enough snowfall leading to snowpack, uh, the snowpack that exists might melt away faster than before. So that's a general trend. Uh, you know, the degree of which is different from model to model, but then the direction is the same. Huh. So we're pretty certain about the direction. Um, uh, so, of course, that that leads perhaps to not enough water during the during the summer. That's you know one of the possible effects, I suppose. Yes. 
Yeah. And then summertime comes, a warming climate will also uh, trigger more intense evaporation or evapotranspiration from the ground and losing more water to it. Um, it, it also, uh, you know, potential flooding. Do, it, do, it, do the models show potential increase in flooding? Uh, as far as Utah is concerned, and the flooding may come in two forms. One is the spring flood. Spring flood is something that uh, we experience from time to time. You know, think about a snowstorm coming in, but it's already in springtime. So, you know, it tends to rain a lot or even snow a lot. But then it quickly warms up or warms back. And then so all those precipitation and snow, they melt off quickly and leading to temporary flooding. You know, and that's something that Utah has, is not falling off. We will have so experienced that. Uh, the springtime flooding tendency, as uh, far as I, I know, hasn't really seen much of a change because that might be a canceling effect between the warming, you know, and which leads to less snowpack. Uh, and also, and, but then the, the sort of rainfall that comes after combined with the snow melt doesn't seem to, they, they, the two of them seem to cancel out. But summertime, summertime convective storms that uh, cause flash floods, this is something that uh, research has shown an expansion of the monsoons. Uh, so, you know, from what well, used to be from southern states uh, during like uh, July, August, those uh, late afternoon thunderstorms. Uh, there has been a tendency for their boundary to push northward. The storms are reaching further and further north, and that may lead to some areas of Utah to see more of the summer storm uh, that translate to potential increase in flash flooding. Huh? Yeah, increase in flash flooding, yeah, yeah. Uh, what about uh, what about just you know warming climate um, and you know just good old fashioned heat waves, hotter? than we have experienced before. Uh, yeah, the heat, the heat wave really comes into play to more of our uh, East Coast uh, citizens and also Midwest. So in, in, a, in, a, in a normally dry Southwest or Western U.S., uh, the, the heat wave, I mean, summertime is hot, and, but it's dry, mostly dry heat here. So heat wave comes in when you have also the humidity levels shooting up. Uh, so that usually comes into the so-called heat index. Uh, just compare, com- you know, imagine that, you know, uh, the hot summer in New Orleans, if you move it to, say, New York, you know, or New Hampshire, or if somewhat you move it to maybe Idaho, then that would be a definition of heat wave. So uh, the definition of heat wave is all relative. Um, but then there's also the tendency showing an increase of heat wave uh, else, uh, everywhere, actually, uh, throughout the nation, the continent, actually throughout the world. But those are, those are mainly focusing focus on middle latitudes, uh, which will be across the United States. So, but then the feelings will be different. But for New York, for East Coast, the increase of heat wave is something that the trend of it has been robust. So, uh, you know, part of this is very interesting. Um, some of this phenomenon, some of these effects of overall uh, warming climate uh, will be, you know, shifting, uh, shifting latitudes, I guess, shifting areas. A place that did not have as much heat will have more heat. A place that did not have flooding will have flooding. 
maybe different effects in, in other latitudes. Um, what is the constant worldwide? Is it, I guess, the, the warming? The warming is the constant worldwide, is it? So the warming, the you know, global warming is actually quite confusing of a terminology. The warming rates across the globe are not uniform. So we're seeing a much faster warming rate in the Arctic regions, in the higher latitudes, than in the tropics. Uh, however, you know, in the tropics, a slight change of temperature can lead to large consequence of atmospheric reactions. So, so this, this coming, when this comes into play, and that's quite complex in the way that we, don't, we may not know what to expect. So I, I, I always approach these uh, questions with what we know the most, which is just where we live and what the season is like. Throughout the four seasons, we experience different types of weather. And in the warming climate scenarios, uh, the underlying tendency is that all these features will get intensified. So the summer heat will become, you know, much more unbearable or maybe longer. And we know that tends to link to drought and wildfire. And, you know, spring storms, and especially for middle the, the, the Midwest of the United States, and then those there's a tendency or stronger storms as well, right? and, which is like normal rainy season weather, but it just becomes stronger. And the only thing that I would just say uh, really on the decline trend is that winter snow. Uh, it's not like because they don't, it doesn't snow, it doesn't precipitate anymore. It's just that the snowpack has become harder to detect. And so that's something for our regions, that's what I would describe. It's more than that. But that's something I think uh, we will simply see more and more uh, of this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, Arctic warming and perhaps warming more in the Arctic regions. That could lead to rising sea level, right? With potentially devastating, uh, very serious effects for coastal cities. Yes. Uh, the rising sea level also is not uniform across. All the everywhere in the oceans. In general, the western portion of the oceans see a much in a much more increase of sea levels than the eastern part of it. Uh, translated, it means that people in Florida will probably see more of a sea level rise than people in San Diego. Uh, however, in general, the sea level is rising, and that's quite definitive. Uh, the, the other issue associated with the ocean is the heat, because uh, why the scientists, the majority of scientists, are so worried uh, if we don't curve back on the warming rate is because that uh, in the beginning, probably 10 to 20 years of the warming effect, and during those times, most of the atmospheric heat, the effective heat, was absorbed by the ocean. And the ocean, you know, started to warm up for, you know, have a degree and another degree, and and the most direct response is coral because coral is very sensitive to ocean temperatures. And then you you probably have all heard about this worldwide uh, large scale coral bleach, you know, coral dying, and that's the first sign of the ocean warming, consecutive warming. And now that all those heat are being, uh, is in the ocean still absorb those heat. But 
not at the rate that can compensate for the atmospheric warming. So the atmosphere is warming up more and faster, uh, while the oceans sometimes dump those heat back to the atmosphere, making it worse. Uh, taking this year as a for example, this year is what we know as the La Nina effect event. The La Nina event is a is a large scale cooling in the central Pacific Oceans. Uh, in the past, a global and the global temperature used to be reduced by these uh, La Nina events because of this cold water in cooler water in the tropical Pacific Ocean. But this year's temperature is approaching a new record. I mean, we have seen a few months of record high temperature, right? which means it's quite alarming because the, the modern natural, you know, it's the, one of the biggest uh, natural variability is the El Nino or La Nina event. Now, even the La Nina event is not enough to pull back this warming. So it's quite alarming, uh, especially during this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't want to necessarily drag us into politics here, and, and I won't do that. But but um, you know, you hear from some climate change skeptics that uh, something to this effect: uh, Sure, yes, climate variability. Uh, we're going to have climate variability, but from some folks, skepticism that this is human caused or that, that humans are causing a significant portion of this. Uh, wonder what your response is. Uh, so the warming rate, especially if you want to generate the rates of heat of warming, you know that has been absorbed by the ocean and now emitted into the atmosphere. To generate that kind of energy is something that the natural variability simply cannot do. Uh, so we we can I mean that's why we study science because we have to be quantitative. The scientists were able to get a lot of observation and apply the physical concepts and then produce these calculations, then you will know that, uh, you know, it's just not possible. The excessive heat that we have observed is not possible by any of the natural variability alone. So I want to take this chance just to fall back on the, the wildfire issue as well. And, you know, every question, every event, uh, extreme events is complex. Now, in terms of the increase of wildfire, uh, you must have heard that uh, you know our central administration uh, was exclusively focusing on simply the uh, forest management, and that was part of the issue. But exclusively focusing on that means that you know we choose to be blind to other issues, and that doesn't solve really. It doesn't really solve the problem. Right? So the forest. Uh, forest management uh, plays a part because, as I said earlier, you know the, the fire reduction leads the, the, the trees to grow more and more dense, which could lead to either fires and the ignition problem, right? And that's both human and natural. Uh, this August California fire, which was one of the records, was ignited by you know dry lightning, which was quite unusual, and earlier on, you and I discussed about, you know, Utah's flash flooding, there's those summer thunderstorms, and I mentioned that there has a tendency for the summer monsoon to expand, you know, the southwest monsoon to expand, and in California, usually, you know, it doesn't really see those uh, monsoonal storms, 
but you know there has a tendency for these moisture bands to expand. And then what happened this year was the dry lightning. Dry lightning means that you have clouds that form because of this uh, intrusion of moisture and heat, but not enough to rain. So it caused the convection and it produced a lot of lightning, but without the rainfall. So those lightnings ignite forest fires, and then the fires start to burn. And so that's one part of the issue as well. It's directly tied to weather, and then that weather pattern has changed, and that directly tied to climate change. And then, you know, we also have to deal with uh, residential and human interactions, such as, you know, back in 2018, the power line issues that led to the campfire. So it's a, if we miss one of these uh, three elements of the increasing fire, then we just can't solve those issues. It's very important to keep an open mind and accept all possibilities. If you just joined us, we are talking with Simon Wang. He is a professor of climate dynamics at Utah State University. Uh, he's also assistant director of the Climate Center at Utah State University. Um, and uh, gave a presentation uh, for Inside Climate News. I'll put a plug in for them uh, recently. A uh, presentation of reporters uh, titled Wildfire, Heat Waves, Snowpack, and Floods, Climate Change in the Mountain West. And we decided we'd like to talk about that on the program today, which we're doing here, uh, thanks to uh, Dr. Wing. We'll have more following this. Utah Public Radio programming is brought to you in part by our members and Curate Company, presenting a holiday open house December 2nd and 3rd from 5 to 8 p.m., located at 26 South Main in Logan, offering home furnishings along with interior design and accents for home and business. Information at curatecompany.co, Instagram, and Facebook. This week in This American Life, when people go into therapy... Everybody knows it can take years, right? You talk and you talk and you talk. But Jamie found out about this method of therapy that instead of years, takes just 10 or 12 sessions. And she decided to find out for herself, could she make progress with a 30-year-old trauma in just two weeks? That's this week. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about climate change in the Mountain West, climate change in general. We're talking with Simon Wang, who's professor of climate dynamics and assistant director of the Utah Climate Center at Utah State University. Um, and uh, Dr. Wang, I want to talk a little bit more about the the effects. Uh, of course, scientists like yourself are studying the specific effects of an increase in uh, global temperatures. Um, and so we talked about, you talked about La Nina. I assume this is also affecting maybe the intensity, severity of El Nino as well. Uh, yes, the La Nina is in just the, the opposite of the El Nino. And La Nina event is 
you know, some people refer to it as a supernormal event, which means that, you know, the eastern part of the Pacific has normally been cooler than the western part, and La Nina event seems to emphasize, uh, enhance that. So how a La Nina happens and then lasts, how long it lasts, has direct uh, implication to the next El Nino that is, it develops. Uh, so, yes, it's one of the same natural variability and big oscillations that scientists have spent a lot of time uh, researching it. In the 90s, you know, there was this, uh, this tendency that uh, you blame everything on El Nino. Um, some people refer that to, like, right now we blame everything on climate change. But uh, it's just an, an example saying that the El Nino and La Nina is still one of the strongest natural variability that affects our weather pattern. Uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, you, you say right now we tend to blame everything on climate change, uh, maybe a natural reaction. Um, do you, I'm sure there are scientists, and maybe you yourself study this, parsing out, you know, maybe what's just natural climate and what what we can blame on climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important to always take the natural variability in mind. For example, um, I have some inquiries from the news, news press about the Atlantic hurricane seasons. And, you know, this year's Atlantic hurricane season is on track to be a, a record. And that coincides with the La Nina, because scientists have long observed that during La Nina years, uh, the, the Atlantic Ocean's hurricane activity will increase. So, you know, that's in, in the same direction. And back to the, your earlier question about the Colorado River, how we could potentially, you know, forecast the Colorado River water supply years ahead. Those uh, knowledge technology uh, was based upon capturing this natural variability as well. It's not necessarily climate change, because the natural variability variability still controls our year-to-year uh, weather anomaly and, and climate anomalies as well. Uh, so uh, earlier we talked about it, warming Arctic regions, and uh, of course that can affect um, sea level. Another another effect, I understand, and I think you talked about this a little bit earlier. I wonder if you could expand on this. Uh, warming Arctic could disrupt uh, the the jet streams. That would have an effect on us, wouldn't it? Yes, uh, it's actually quite direct because our weather, you know. Let it be rainy day today or sunny day tomorrow. It's uh, con- it's directly controlled by how the jet stream reacts. You know, if this jet stream is is curving in such a way and then stronger or weaker, that directly affects our weather. And the jet stream is a result of differential heating of any planet. So if you have any planet at the sphere that rotates. Right. When you have the warmer tropics and cooler Arctic, they automatically generate a jet stream of the, you know, let it be uh, uh, water or fluid or atmosphere. So you can see that the basis, the fundamental mechanism of the jet stream is the heat difference, the differential heat between Arctic and the tropics. So if the Arctic regions it's warming up much faster than the tropics. Right now, it's about three to four times faster. Then you're going to change this uh, thermal gradient, this difference in heat distribution of the Earth, and that directly will come back to, 
change the gesturing dynamics. So uh, there's a big debate, right, an active debate on how the gesturing is changed, and it can get very can uh, can get very detailed, very complex. Um, you know, maybe it's the the, the width, the speed, or uh, the vertical extent. You know, the location of the jet, and every season is different too. But for sure, this changing gesturing behavior will uh, affect our climate. So in the long run, uh, we might see a collective increase of extreme weather. You know, for example, for the same area, you see increase in both heat wave and flood. They seem to be, you know, opposite of the coin, but they, they're increasing the same, you know, around, uh, over the same region over time, and that will lead to a disruptive gesturing pattern as well. So, Every time the gesturing pass through, when it's curved, it curves strong, more strongly, probably last longer as well, making these events become more extreme. Huh? Let's talk a little bit more about prediction and how, how predictive, accurate the models uh, can be. I was reading an interview you gave, um, you and other editors of uh, this book, uh, Climate Extremes, uh, they asked a very good question. To what extent is it possible to predict uh, extreme weather and climate events? And uh, you and the other editors uh, talked about a couple of success stories. Uh, Somalia, for example. Where, uh, uh, yes. Yeah, why don't you talk yes. about that? The extreme events, as, as we know, I mean, the, the book is about climate extremes. So it means that the extreme weather that lasts for multiple days, at least. Uh, so, so that touch some great areas. And let's take a Hurricane Harvey, for example. Why was that hurricane so strong? Was it a weather event or is it extreme climate events? Well, that, that hurricane lasts uh, over the similar regions for four days, actually five days. Uh, so, and that's actually, you know, going out of this weather time scale. Uh, usually we say weather to be roughly, roughly a week of time. Uh, Utah's inversion uh, winter inversion sometimes can last for two to three weeks, and that's definitely outside the weather uh, time scale too. So, in terms of predictions, uh, we all know that we pretty much trust the the weather channel for maybe next three days, and then gonna check again, right, three days later for the for the for next week's weather. So we we, we know that. So, uh, how accurate of a forecast? And B, you know, it's a question that comes to how far you look and then how to interpret those forecasts. But in terms of the, the, the Somali cases, as, you know, the Horn of Africa, uh, they have under, they underwent some of the worst drought in history, you know, in the early uh, 21st century. And those are something that by capturing the El Nino uh, oscillation change, how the El Nino changes, and you can provide uh, some uh, about you know from a few months to the to, to the couple of seasons B time to see that okay you know maybe this region will heading will be heading into a drought a severe drought so that's called climate prediction uh, it doesn't really give you this day to day you know temperature in the in what range that kind of forecast but it will give you a anomalous sense. So how strong of an, an anomaly would be? Would the drought that we see coming, and you know, be within the normal range, or it's outside what we have seen before? Right. Uh, 
so those are those are something that the prediction and the language of the prediction will come in and they apply to different places. But it, it takes an interpretation of that. Yeah, and apparently the example in Somalia, the predictions helped to motivate early humanitarian assistance, right, which, you know, headed off a repeat of uh, maybe more severe human suffering that, that happened in the past. Um, want to, uh, this was interesting to me in this same interview, uh, you and the other editors uh, talked about a, a uh, reporting crisis in the world, and this wasn't referring to newspaper reporters, this was referring to a, a decline in the number of reporting weather stations. Yes. Uh, uh, believe it or not, the reason, you know, o- at least over North America, uh, in the United States, uh, we know how much our temperature has changed, come from a lot of stations, those are voluntarily monitored. It can be someone that you know, you know, it's home, they're in their ranch, in their farms. Uh, some of the stations uh, have, have gone on, non-stop for like a hundred years, which is which is amazing because it depends on citizen science. Uh, it's called co-op stations, you know, the early name of it. So it's it, it's the collective effort of our citizens to contribute to this long observation of science. So now, you know, weather stations are becoming better and better and more advanced. And there are certainly more stations deployed, but then the long record, the longer record stations are declining because we, we, we are really uh, losing these uh, long-lasting stations that it, it's really took effort to maintain. You know, you have to go out and record it by hand and then upload it, you know, uh, to the government server. So those stations are, are diminishing, even though uh, automatic stations seem to be increasing. You mentioned uh, citizen science. Um, so, you know, people listening here in Utah or, or other areas, um, it, are there opportunities? If a person's interested, can can they set up a, you know, a rain gauge or weather information in their yard? I'm glad you asked, Tom. Yes, uh, Utah State University um, also takes part in this so-called COCORAS program, which you can contact uh, our climate center staff and then sign up to be an observer for rainfall. Uh, we know that the temperature, you know, if, if uh, Logan warms up two degrees, possibly Salt Lake City warms up too. But in terms of rainfall, we really need observations because, because the storms are, you know, scattered and then fewer apart. Um, so we really know as many observers as possible. And then Utah State University and the Climate Center happens to to, to monitor and participate in these corporate stations where users who can sign up and then get a, a rain gauge and then put it into your home, your yard, and then you can you can record it and report it when you can. And if you go out or on vacations, you simply enter the code and it's inactive. So, you know, that way everyone can contribute to this much-needed weather observations especially when it comes to precipitation. Huh? We're reaching the end of our time, and I'm, I'm curious uh, here near the end of the conversation, uh, Simon Wang, what, what are you, uh, what's on your mind? What's, what's the big scientific question you uh, that's got you excited right now? I, I'm, I focus all my research efforts into a better prediction. 
uh, as a meteorologist by training, uh, that had, that would always be my you know scientific missions. Uh, it's just like you know, it's just like to predict human behavior. You really need to understand human, you know, different cultures and different uh, backgrounds, all that. And you know, for me and my colleagues to be able to predict the weather or next year's climate, you know, for example, we really need to understand a lot of the physical properties of this this area and the weather phenomena. So that takes research, and then, but you know, here in the climate center. We always keep this mission of application, which directly translates to prediction in mind. Uh, so we're really trying to predict everything that can, you know, endanger our our daily operations and our lives. And in 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 line in, in our line of research, and that's extreme weather and extreme climate events. Uh, well, we reached the end of our uh, time uh, together. Very interesting and, of course, important uh, research and work that Simon Wang is doing. has been our guest. Simon Wang is Professor of Climate Dynamics and Assistant Director of Utah Climate Center at Utah State University. Uh, Dr. Wang, uh, thank you so much. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Support for Year of the Woman on Utah Public Radio comes from Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce, offering COVID-19 resources, video meetings, and social media exposure, building value for all types of Cache Valley businesses. Details at cachechamber.com. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.